0: Well, good morning. If you have a Bible, please turn to the Gospel of Luke, Luke chapter 22. Been in this great book for a while now, coming to um, the end, getting close here, this uh, book of facts about the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus. We're now in Luke chapter 22, and we'll be reading verses 31 through 38 this morning, Luke 22 verses 31 through 38. If you need a Bible, you don't have one this morning, you can slip your hand up. One of our ushers will bring one to you, and you're welcome to take that home if you don't have one at home. Luke chapter 22, starting in verse 31. Let's pray before we read. Well, Lord, we just gather again here this morning. We believe what your word says, Father, that you live in the body of Christ. That you do not live in tabernacles and temples, that you indwell the people of God by the Spirit. So Father, we just believe as we've gathered here now that we are in the presence of God, as we are in the presence of one another. Father, that is amazing that in us broken people, uh, just trusting uh, in Christ Jesus, you would indwell us by your Spirit. And so, Father, we just look now with expectation as we gather together in your presence uh, to, to hear your word read and proclaimed. We just ask you to give us hearts to, to hear, uh, to receive, Lord, uh, what you would have for us in this part of your word. We thank you for it. In Jesus' name, amen. This is Jesus talking. He says, Simon, Simon, behold, Satan demanded to have you that he might sift you like wheat. But I have prayed for you, that your faith may not fail. And when you have turned again, strengthen your brothers. And Peter said to him, Lord, I'm ready to go with you both to prison and to death. And Jesus said, I tell you, Peter, the rooster will not crow this day until you deny three times that you know me. And he said to them, when I sent you out with no money bag or knapsack or sandals, did you lack anything? And they said, nothing. He said to them, But now, let the one who has a money bag take it, and likewise a knapsack. And let the one who has no sword sell his cloak and buy one. For I tell you that this Scripture must be fulfilled in me. And he was numbered with the transgressors. For what is written about me has its fulfillment. And they said, Look, Lord, here are two swords. And he said to them, it is enough. Amen. My wife Molly and I and our kids, we moved here uh, to Minnesota from Mississippi about seven years ago now. I was there uh, in Mississippi in seminary, and we moved up north here to uh, Minnesota. And uh, one thing we love about Minnesota is the different seasons. Uh, Down in Mississippi there were really only two seasons called Hot and Hotter. And uh, we, we love that up here. Uh, we actually get four legitimate seasons, like God originally created the world to function. And uh, one thing I've learned uh, up here is that you, you do really need to prepare for the seasons here. Uh, we didn't have to prepare at all for different seasons down south, uh, but you do here, especially for winter. In late fall, when the last leaves are falling from your trees and the days are growing, Shorter, you, you know that you're about ready to enter into this uh, rather cold and uh, uh, fairly harsh season beautiful in its own way. Um, we have l- learned to love the winters here, but still fairly bitter. You know you're entering into this thing, and if you're wise, you prepare for it. Uh, you, you put the summer clothes in the basement. Uh, you pull the winter gear out. You move the lawnmower, the bikes, and the fishing gear back into the shed, and then you drag the shovels, sleds, and snowblower up to your garage. You're entering this new season. Of life, and you prepare for it. And you know, at this point in the book of Luke, Jesus he knows that his original disciples will soon be entering this very new season of life, a pretty difficult and harsh season at times. Up to this point, the the disciples of Jesus, you know, they, they haven't really faced a ton of hardship. They've gone through a few trials traveling with Jesus around Israel, but things have not been that difficult for them. They've been in a training season of sorts, but the season is about to change for these men, and things will soon get much more difficult for them. In just a few hours now, Jesus will be killed. And, and, and even though Jesus will rise again from the dead, he'll, he'll then only hang around on earth for a brief time before he then ascends back into heaven. The, his death and his departure are now pretty much here for these guys. And after Jesus does depart for heaven, these disciples here, will then face the very daunting task of moving out into a hostile world to make disciples of all nations. As Jesus will command them to do in the Great Commission. These men are entering a very new season of life here. A fairly difficult and harsh season of life. And in this passage, Jesus is preparing his disciples, I believe, for this new season. Getting them ready for his death and his departure. Getting them ready for their future disciple-making mission to all nations. Jesus says two primary things here, I believe, to prepare his disciples for this new season. And one thing he says here is, my disciples will be sifted. At this point in time here, Jesus and his disciples, they, they are still in an upper room in some home in Jerusalem where they just finished a Passover meal, they're all still reclining around the table there, and they've been discussing some things after this meal. They've been having a little bit of after-dinner table talk, and Jesus now says this, if you look at verse 31 again, Simon, Simon, behold, Satan demanded to have you that he might sift you like wheat. And and, you know, Jesus speaks directly there to Simon Peter, but he was addressing all of his disciples there in that room, and we know that because in the Greek, the you in verse one there is plural. Behold, Simon, Satan demanded to have you, plural. Satan demanded to have all of you disciples, Or as they say in Mississippi, Satan demanded to have y'all. And Jesus says here, Jesus says here that that Satan demanded to have them in order that he might sift them like wheat. In order that that he might shake the, the, the disciples somehow violently. He might chafe them or rub them, test them, tempt them, toss them around in the hope that they would then fall for good and be blown away like chaff. In our lingo, we might say that Satan wanted to pick them to pieces or tear them apart. 1 Peter 5.8, Satan was prowling around these disciples here like a roaring lion, demanding to have them in the hope that he might then devour them. But man, please notice that Satan had to ask for permission. You know, Jesus says that Satan demanded to have the disciples. In the Greek word there could also be translated as requested or asked with emphasis. He's asking strongly to have the disciples. One English translation says Satan demanded permission to have the disciples. And demanded permission from whom? From Jesus. Jesus. You know, Satan and his demons are powerful beings. They are. But they do not have sovereign power to do anything they want in this universe. No, the Bible's very clear. Jesus has all authority in heaven and on earth. Jesus is the only sovereign power in this universe. The only one. And Satan cannot do a thing to Jesus' disciples. Without jesus's permission. <laughs> if you're a parent here this morning, you uh, have probably had a kid, little kid, ask you for candy at some point, and you know how it goes. Can I? Can I, mommy? Can I, can I, can I, please? I really, really want some. Please, 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 please. They'll nag you to death trying to get the candy. And seriously, man, that. Uh, that little half pint will even then start demanding candy from you. In some ways, you get kind of the stomping of the foot and, and commanding, Mommy or Daddy, I want candy, and I want it now. You know how it is. But you know, you know what's great about being a parent? When your kids plead and cry for candy, when your kids even begin to assert their little wills, and demand and throw an absolute fit with candy, you do not have to give it to them. (laughs) You have sovereign power over the candy in your home. And they can ask, command, kick, scream, and cry all they want. They can demand it as if they have a right to it, but unless you give them permission, no candy. And that is kind of the way it is with Satan and the disciples of Jesus. That's the way it is with Satan and Christians, anyone who trusts in Christ. Satan and his demons, they they may desire and may even demand to have you and to harm you. They may demand to sift you in some way, but they do not have sovereign power to do just anything they want to you. If Satan and his demons want to touch the disciples of Jesus in some way, if they want to harass or harm them in some way, they have to go through Jesus and ask. And surprisingly... Jesus does, at times, then permit or allow Satan and his demons to touch his disciples in some ways. Jesus at times will then allow or permit Satan to tempt and test his disciples, shake them, rattle them, sift them in some ways. But listen, Jesus always put bound, puts boundaries on Satan. You can come this far, Satan, and no further. And every time Jesus allows Satan or his demons to touch his people in any way, it is always for his glory and their eternal good. To conform them to his image and prepare them for eternity. In the story of Job, in the Old Testament, Satan wanted to harm Job. So what did he do? Well, he didn't have sovereign power to do just anything he wanted to Job. And what did Satan do? He asked for permission from God. Can I afflict Job? And God God allowed it. But God did put boundaries on Satan. What Satan could do to Job. He said, you can come this far, Satan, and no further. And God allowed Satan to afflict Job to some degree for his glory and for Job's eternal good. And right here, Satan is once again asking for permission. Demanding, demanding permission from Jesus here to sift his disciples like wheat. And here's the thing. Jesus is going to allow it to some degree. These disciples here are now entering into a new season. They will now be shaken violently at times by the powers of darkness. Tempted, tested, unsettled, and even killed at times in the future. They they will be sifted. You know, Satan was asking here to sift all the disciples But it's obvious that Satan's primary target here was Simon Peter. Jesus addresses Peter directly in verse 31 as he talks to all the disciples there. And in the very next verse, verse 32, Jesus talks to Peter alone. In verse 32, Jesus uses the word you or your four more times. But now, in the Greek, they are all singular. Let me point them out to you. Look at verse 32. Jesus just said Satan has demanded Peter to have you plural and sift y'all. But Jesus says, I have prayed for you, singular Peter, that your singular faith may not fail. And when you, singular Peter, have turned again, strengthen your singular brothers and then you can see now, Jesus is absolutely zeroing in on Simon Peter exclusively. Satan is primarily after you, Peter. And you, you know what, it's, it's absolutely no surprise that Satan would go after Peter. Peter was the lead disciple in many ways. Peter was the first among equals He was equal to the other disciples, but he was in the lead on many occasions. The first disciple Jesus called in Luke 5, the first to confess Jesus as Messiah in Luke 9. Peter is the linchpin to some degree, the the guy that holds all of the other disciples together. And I I think Satan was probably thinking here that if he could cause Simon Peter to fall for good... The whole deck of cards would come down. And all of the disciples would fall for good. So Jesus warns them here. Satan wants to sift you in particular, Peter. But, Jesus says, I have prayed for you. I have prayed for you, Peter. And man, please notice, please notice what Jesus prayed for, Peter? Surprisingly, Jesus didn't pray here that Satan would not sift him. Jesus didn't pray here that Peter would not sin and deny him. Jesus didn't pray here that Peter would not fall. Why? Why? Because Jesus is going to allow Peter to do all those things. Jesus is going to allow Peter to be sifted by Satan. Jesus is going to allow Peter to sin in that situation. Jesus is going to allow Simon Peter to fall. But man, what Jesus did pray for when it came to Peter Was that in that fall, his faith would not fail. His faith would not die. Jesus prayed here that the flame of faith in Peter's heart, in that sifting and that sin and that fall, would not ultimately be quenched. That's what Satan wanted. That's what Satan wanted. He didn't just ultimately want Peter to, to sin and deny Jesus for a time. No, Satan wanted to kill Peter's faith in Jesus. Quench it for good. Make him walk away from Jesus and never return. It's the faith of a disciple that's critical. The faith of a disciple is what Satan was after. But he's not going to get it. Because Jesus has prayed for Peter's faith. And Jesus's prayers never fail. Jesus knows. He knows Peter will fall. He's going to let him fall. But Jesus also knows that Peter will return because he's prayed for him to return. And he says it to Peter here. He says to Peter, when you have turned again. When you, Peter, have repented and come back to me. Not if you come back, Peter. But when you come back, Peter. Because you will come back. Because I've prayed for you. I've prayed for your faith. You will come back. Amen. Peter's return to Jesus will be proof. Peter's return to to Jesus will be proof that, that his faith is really genuine. You know, if a person's faith in Jesus dies out at some point for good, the trials of life come and the flame is quenched and they walk away from Jesus forever, that is proof that their faith was never a genuine faith. It was a false faith. A counterfeit superficial faith. Because true faith never dies. You know why? Jesus won't let it die. John 10, 27. My sheep hear my voice, Jesus says. And I know them. And they follow me. I give them eternal life. And they will never perish. And no one will snatch them out of my hand. Do you know why Jesus will lose none of his people? Because his reputation is at stake. His glory is at stake. He promised he would lose none. And therefore, for his glory, for his namesake, for his worship, he will not lose one. And if you have a theology that says people can lose their salvation, that does damage to the glory of Christ. Jesus will not lose even one of his people. Now, the flame of faith in a Christian's heart may waver at times. Many may, may it might flicker and maybe even appear to go out at times. Some Christians might commit some horrendous sins at times, like David's adultery with Bathsheba and murder of Uriah. Uh, Some Christians might openly walk away from Jesus for a time and even deny Him with cursing like Peter will soon do. But if the Holy Spirit truly lives in a person's heart, the Holy Spirit will make sure that the flame of faith is never Ultimately quenched. A true Christian will always return. And ultimately persevere in faith to the end. You you don't ultimately persevere in faith as a Christian. Because you are a great person. No, you persevere in faith as a Christian. Because Jesus is a great person. And he prays for your faith. And he sustains your faith. And he gets all the glory for you making it to the end. A Christian Christian perseveres because Jesus preserves. In John Bunyan's famous book, Pilgrim's Progress, which is an allegory of the Christian life, Christian, the main character in the book, he goes at one point into the interpreter's house, and the interpreter takes Christian into a room where there's a fireplace up against one wall, a fire in the fireplace, and a man is standing there dumping water on the fire. But the fire only gets stronger. And Christian asks Interpreter why, and Interpreter then leads Christian around behind the wall, and hidden on the other side of the wall, right behind the fire, was another man. Dumping oil on the fire through a hole in the wall. And that's, that's a picture of the hidden work of the Holy Spirit in a Christian's heart. He will not let a genuine flame of faith die. Peter will return to Jesus because he has a genuine faith and because Jesus has prayed for his faith that it will not fail. And and Jesus says here to Peter, When you return, Peter, strengthen your brothers. Amen. That that right there is one of the main reasons why Jesus will let Peter be sifted. Strength for starters, so that Peter himself will be stronger. That's what sifting does for a Christian. That's what trials and afflictions and temptation do for a Christian. They make you stronger. James 1, 2, count it all joy when you meet trials of various kinds. For you know that the testing of your faith produces steadfastness. The flame of faith gets stronger through sifting. Romans 5, 3, suffering produces endurance. And endurance character and character hope. The siftings of this life make a Christian stronger. The siftings of this life are are like weights in a weight room. God allows these weights to, to, to come against you in your life. These, these trials and, and afflictions and temptations. And you push back against them by the power of the Holy Spirit. And your spiritual muscles get stronger. Siftings make a Christian stronger. Siftings make a Christian stronger. Even when a Christian happens to sin in the sifting. Like Peter. Peter. Even when a Christian happens to drop the weights in the weight room, man, God has this crazy way, amazing way of using even that process of falling and repenting to make a Christian stronger. You become more guarded against temptation in your life. More vigilant in your fight against sin, you, you fall in love with Jesus even more because of His forgiveness for your recent sin. It's amazing how God can work even in a Christian sin, in the middle of a sifting through that process of of, of falling and repenting again. God makes the Christian stronger. God works all things together for good. To those who love him and are called according to his purposes. God even uses the sin of a believer for good. For those who love God and are called according to his purposes. Jesus will let Peter go through this mess. Because Jesus wants to make Peter stronger. To prepare Peter for what lies ahead in the book of Acts. But listen, please listen. Jesus... He won't just use Peter's sifting here to make Peter stronger. No, Jesus is going to use Peter's sifting here to make all the disciples stronger. Jesus Jesus says, after you return, Peter, strengthen your brothers. Man, after your faith is strengthened, Peter, strengthen the faith of your fellow brothers and sisters. Levi preached last week, and he talked about how God comforts us in our afflictions in order that we might then comfort others in their afflictions. In our afflictions, when God comforts us, God has the community in mind. The community of believers. He he, he comforts me in order that I might comfort others. It's not just about me and God. God deals with me thinking of the broader community. And we see the same thing right here when it comes to strength. God allows you to be sifted. Not just so you can become stronger in your little individual Christian life. just, Just you and your personal Jesus. No, no. God has the community of believers in mind when He strengthens you. God strengthens you in order that you might then go and strengthen others in your local church family. And Peter will do that. In the book of Acts, once Peter is restored, when the disciples finally head out on their disciple-making mission, Peter will be a major player. Strong himself now but also strengthening his fellow believers. But man, Peter at this time, Peter does, he, he, he does not believe yet that he will actually fall and need to be strengthened. You look at verse 33, Jesus just predicted he would fall, and Peter now says, Lord, I'm ready to go with you both to prison and death. And Jesus said, I tell you, Peter, the rooster will not crow this day until you deny three times that you know me. I think Peter hears these words from Jesus about him. What is this, sifting and returning? And he's like, you're crazy. I'm ready right now to go with you to prison and death. And you know, think about Peter. The truth is that Peter will, in time, go to both prison and death for Christ. Acts 16, Peter will be in prison for Jesus, and history tells us that Peter was eventually killed for Jesus, apparently crucified upside down at his request because he didn't consider himself worthy to die like Jesus. Peter will go to prison and death for Jesus, but Peter is not yet ready to do that he'll be tested in just a few hours and he will fail miserably and why i think the core problem i think the core problem with peter was pride peter's still too proud at this time he's, he's still too confident in his ability to follow christ still still trusting to a large degree in his strength a self-confident self Dependent disciple to a large degree. Not yet recognizing his frailty and his weakness. Not yet leaning hard on Jesus. And depending on, on Jesus for everything. Pride. And man, listen. Pride always comes before a fall. Before a disgrace. Proverbs 11 Two, Peter still needs to be humbled, and Jesus is going to allow Peter in his pride to be sifted and to fall in order to humble him, to teach Peter to depend on him, lean on him, trust in him always. You, You really think you're ready, Peter, to go prison and death for me. You'll deny three times that you know me before the rooster crows this day in just a few hours from now. But I've prayed for you. And you will return a humbled man for my glory and your eternal good, Peter. So that's one thing Jesus says here to his disciples, to Prepare them for this new season of life they are now entering, my disciples will be sifted, and please listen that right there that does not just apply to these original disciples. that right there that that, that applies to some degree to all of jesus 's disciples that that applies to every disciple here in this room today because we all live in this difficult season. That these disciples here were just entering. We, just like these disciples would, we live after the death and departure of Jesus. And you know what? We have the same great commission that these disciples did. We still face this daunting task of going out into a hostile world to make disciples of all nations. And we, just like these original disciples, we will also be sifted at times. Now, not exactly like these men. These men were the original apostles. They faced a very unique sifting from Satan. But we will also, in similar ways, be sifted as disciples of Jesus. Trials, afflictions, temptations, chafed, rubbed, tossed around. As we seek to live for Jesus... And seek to take the gospel of Jesus to the world. Now listen. Satan and his demons will request at times to sift us. They will request to sift us. And Jesus will occasionally allow it. Allow them at times to shake us, tempt us, test us. Maybe violently. At times in the hope they will sift in the hope that we will fall away from Christ for good. But, he, but here's the good news. Here's the good news for every disciple here today who trusts in Jesus. Jesus conquered Satan on the cross. And even though he will come to sift at times in your life. Jesus is always in control. Jesus always sets boundaries on what He can do. And in the midst of our sifting, Jesus is praying for our faith. Hebrews 7.23 Jesus is able to save to the uttermost those who draw near to God through Him since He always lives to make intercession for them. Jesus is interceding for his people constantly. If you are his disciple right now, he is praying for you. And when you are in your worst sifting in this life, you feel like all hell is breaking loose around you. Jesus is still in control. Jesus is with you. And Jesus is praying for you. And his prayers never fail. Therefore, your faith will never fail. No matter how bad the sifting might be in your life, even if you someday are martyred for Christ, Jesus will set boundaries even in that martyrdom, so even there you are not tempted beyond what you are able. You will not give up. Your faith will not die. And the second you physically die, you will be with Him in glory. He will be with you at all times, praying for you, even in your worst sifting. We will persevere because Jesus preserves. We may may fall at times in our sifting, but every true disciple will ultimately return stronger. And Jesus will then say, now now go and strengthen your brothers. I have strengthened you in your sifting so that you might now go and strengthen others in your local church family and in your life groups. Encourage your brothers and sisters. Comfort your brothers and sisters. Be there for your brothers and sisters in trial. Speak words of life to your brothers and sisters when they're suffering. Lift the arms of your brothers and sisters when they're weary. I've strengthened you so that you might go and strengthen your brothers. Do unto others as I've done unto you. Do unto others as I've done unto you. So that's one thing Jesus says here about this season in which we now live. My disciples will be sifted. And just very quickly, a second thing Jesus says here, I believe. My disciples in this season, they will face rejection and hostility. My disciples in this season will face rejection and hostility. You look at verse 35. Jesus now says to his disciples... When, when I sent you out with no money bag or knapsack or sandals, did you lack anything? And they said, nothing. And Jesus was referring there to Luke chapter 9. Way back in the book of Luke, when Jesus sent his disciples, these men here, he sent them out on a mission in Israel to tell people about Jesus. And Jesus told them back in Luke 9... Take nothing for your journey. I don't want you to take any money. I don't want you to take any sandals. Nothing extra. And and I think Jesus sent them out like that back then. Primarily to teach them to trust in God the Father. that, That he would provide for them when they were out on mission. But I think Jesus also knew that at that time in Luke 9, many people in Israel still liked him. And would welcome his disciples. Large crowds in Israel were still flocking at that time to get close to Jesus. Now the religious leaders didn't like him, but the people were flocking to get close to Jesus. They liked him by and large. And I think Jesus knew then that many of those people in Israel would be willing to care for his disciples. God the Father would ultimately provide for their needs... But God would provide for their needs through the Jewish people. The season in Israel back then was still sunny and warm to some degree. It was was a bit of a favorable climate for mission in Israel. And, And Jesus says to his disciples here, when you went out with nothing back then, did you lack anything? And they said nothing. God provided through welcoming homes there in Israel. But here's the thing. Jesus knows here that this season will soon change in a dramatic way. The season in Israel will now change quickly. Jesus knows that the same people who recently flocked to get close to him will tomorrow afternoon walk by him and mock him when he's on the cross. Those who very recently liked Him in Israel wanted to be close to Him. Jesus knows they will soon hate and despise Him. Man, right now, at this point in time, very cold and bitter winds have begun to blow through Israel. The leaves have now fallen, the days have grown shorter, and a very harsh Winter will soon arrive, and Jesus knows that his disciples, when they go out into Israel on their future disciple-making mission after his death and departure, they will face a very different climate than before, not a favorable welcoming climate, but a climate of rejection and hostility. And here's the thing, in their future disciple-making mission, these disciples here won't just go out into Israel. No, now they will go out into other nations. Nations that that have never heard about the God of the Bible. Nations that have never heard about Jesus. They don't want to hear about Jesus. They don't like Jesus. They don't want Jesus. The climate of rejection and hostility is coming in and they will face it everywhere. Everywhere. A very different season for these men. A very different mission for these men in many ways. God will still provide for them on their mission. He'll just provide for them in different ways. They won't always find provisions waiting for them now in welcoming homes along the way. Now they'll have to take some provisions with them. You look at verse 36. Jesus says, When I sent you out the first time, disciples, you took nothing and you lacked nothing, but now. But now, Jesus says, let the one who has a money bag take it. And likewise a knapsack. And let the one who has no sword sell his cloak and buy one. For I tell you that this Scripture must be fulfilled in Me. And He was numbered with the transgressors. For what is written about Me has its fulfillment. And they said, look, Lord, here are two swords. And He said, that's enough. Man, and I... I think Jesus was essentially saying this to his disciples. Disciples, you're entering into a new and very difficult season of life. It's not not a favorable, welcoming climate anymore, but a climate of rejection and hostility for you. R.C. Sproul says Jesus was warning his disciples there that everything was about to change. Whereas they were once welcomed because of him everywhere they went, all that has changed. The world is now about to turn on them in hatred because of him. And because of that change in seasons here that's taking place in Israel, the disciples will now need to take some provisions for the road. Even now a sword, Jesus says. Sell your coat and buy a sword. And man, it is not easy to know for sure what Jesus means there when he tells his disciples to go and buy a sword. Christians have debated for years over the meaning of that. A lot of Christians have been debating it recently online in different blog posts and things. Jerry Falwell Jr., John Piper, and others. I don't have time this morning to get into all of those details. You can go online and find those things and read them. They're making comments about the sword here in this passage. You can look it up, make your own decision there. This morning, I want to just try to give, give this to you here very, very simply. When Jesus tells his disciples here to, to, to go now and buy a sword, he could have been saying a couple different things. I think the original disciples here probably thought Jesus was telling them to arm themselves for war. Arm yourselves for a holy war, because here it comes. They've been looking for Jesus to do something cataclysmic as the Messiah, to come and revolt against the Romans. And I think they were probably thinking along those lines. Jesus wants us to arm ourselves for a holy war, a Maccabean revolt, the Crusades. Here. Advancing the cause of Christ through violence. Later in this chapter, when the soldiers come for Jesus, these disciples here, they say, Shall we strike with the sword, Lord? And they do. <laughs> I pull out the sword and lop off a guy's ear. And Jesus says, enough of this. And he heals the man's ear. I think these disciples probably thought Jesus was telling them here to arm themselves for some sort of holy war. But he wasn't. That is not the way of Jesus. He does not advance His cause in the world by killing. Other religions may try to. Radical Islamists now try to advance the cause of Allah by killing. But Jesus and His followers do not advance the cause of Jesus by killing, but by dying. Not by persecuting, but by suffering persecution. God has sovereignly ordained to advance the gospel of Jesus Christ around the globe through persecution of His people and even the martyrdom of His people. Not through Christians killing with the sword, but through Christians embracing the sword. That's what Jesus did on the cross. A sword in his side. Embracing the sword. He died so that we could have life. Men in the Garden of Eden, when mankind rebelled against God, we were banned from the tree of life in the Garden of Eden. No more eternal life for the human race. We started dying. And God put a flaming sword Outside of the garden. To keep us from the tree of life. To keep us from eternal life as sinners. And in order for us to get back to that tree of life. In order for us to get back to eternal life. Somebody would have to go through the sword. And Jesus did. On the cross taking the penalty for our sin, passing through the flaming sword and opening up access again to the tree of life, which you now see in the book of Revelation, all the people of God enjoying eternal life. Jesus embraced a sword and brought life to the world. Life through death. That is how Jesus advances his cause on this earth. And we see the disciples here doing the same thing now in the book of Acts. They, they try to advance the cause of Christ initially by killing with the sword, but you never see the disciples again using the sword to advance the cause of Christ. All the way through the book of Acts, they don't kill with the the sword. They embraced the sword. And they spread the gospel through their persecution and even their martyrdom. Jesus was definitely not telling his disciples here to arm themselves for a holy war. Jesus may, however, have been telling his disciples here to arm themselves with with some sort of simple self-defense for the road, for for the mission out into the world, Jesus is sending them out into a hostile territory, sending them out into foreign countries. And it was common for people back then to carry a small sword for robbers and thugs. It's it's clear that a couple of these disciples here were already carrying swords, because when Jesus mentions a sword, they pull two out and say, here are two. They've got these little swords that were used for self-defense or protection, not to advance the cause of Christ. And it's possible Jesus was telling them all now to get a small sword for the road. Not to kill in some sort of holy war, but for simple self-defense out in the mission field. God never condemns personal self-defense in the Bible. He doesn't condemn it. It's very possible that's what Jesus was saying here. Or, I think it's also possible that Jesus was not actually talking literally here, but metaphorically. He wasn't telling them here to be armed physically. He was telling them to be armed spiritually. To be prepared to fight spiritually on the road. Not not prepared to war, as Paul says in Ephesians 6, against flesh and blood, but against spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly places armed with prayer and the sword of the Spirit, going out, as, uh, going out innocent as doves, but wise as serpents, for the days would now be evil. Very tough to know for sure what Jesus was saying right there, but the bottom line is this, I believe. Whatever Jesus was saying there about the sword, he's clearly indicating to his disciples here that they are now entering a new season of life, a new and difficult season, a season of opposition. Persecution, rejection, hostility. And they must now be prepared for it. Their mission in the world now will be drastically different than their earlier mission. And why, man, why was this new season coming into Israel? Here's the only reason. Because of Jesus. That's what Jesus says. Verse 37, Go by a sword, disciples, and why? For, or for this reason, for I tell you that this scripture must be fulfilled in me. And he was numbered with the transgressors. For what is written about me has its fulfillment. Jesus was quoting there from Isaiah 53. A famous prophecy about the suffering Messiah. This Messiah who who would one day be wounded for our transgressions, as Isaiah said. And crushed for our iniquities. All we, Isaiah said, like sheep, had, had gone astray. But I, Isaiah said that the Messiah, the Lord would lay on the Messiah, the iniquity of us all. And Isaiah said the Messiah would be numbered with the transgressors. And yet Isaiah said He would bear the sin of many. And when Jesus quotes from Isaiah 53 right there, He's saying to His disciples, That's me. Everything that Isaiah prophesied in Isaiah 53, that will be fulfilled in me tomorrow. Tomorrow, in just a few hours, I will be numbered with the transgressors. I will be hanging between two thieves. I will be counted as a criminal with those thieves. I will be counted as a transgressor. I will be counted as a sinner. And why? In order that every sinner who trusts in me might be counted as righteous. That must be fulfilled. And Jesus is telling his disciples, disciples, right now the world is going to turn against me. And here's the thing, disciples, it's not just turning against me, it's turning against you. John 15, if they hated me, they will hate you. The season is changing. You will now face rejection and hostility, disciples, as you seek to live for me, as you seek to take the gospel to the nations. And listen, again, we live in that same season. The world hated Jesus and killed him. Rejection and hostility and the world will hate the disciples of Jesus today. It's just the way it is. And, And you know what? Jesus is just telling us that. Not to make us afraid. Not to make us hide in our homes and just beef up our self-security systems. Now Jesus is telling us that. Not so we would be afraid and hide. But so we wouldn't be surprised when it comes. So we would still go boldly into the nations. But not run in fear when we're faced with hostility and rejection out there on the mission field. Don't be surprised, Jesus is saying, just be prepared. He wants us to cross the pain line and risk pain for the sake of his glory. to Advance the gospel around this world. Jesus did it for us. Now may we do it for others. We live in a new season. Let's be prepared. Go boldly sharing Christ and, if necessary, suffering for Christ to make disciples of all nations. Father, we thank you for your word. Lord, your ways are not our ways. We would not seek to advance something in this earth through death. Through pain, through suffering, through persecution, through, through humiliation. That's not our ways. Father, we would seek to advance things on this earth through, through conquering power, might, violence of the sword, We see it all over the world now. God, I pray you would search our hearts and our minds. Father, you would weed out things that would not be biblical. Father, we do want to be uh, wise as serpents as we are harmless as doves in this world. Father, maybe you would call us to some sort of self-defense around robbers and thugs. Help us, Lord, in those situations. But Father, when it is time for us to embrace the sword for the sake of Jesus Christ, may we not pull out a pistol and kill our persecutors. Pray in the name of Jesus, Father, when it is time for us to lay down our lives in order to advance the gospel of Jesus Christ. May you help us to do it. for your glory and the joy of all nations. We thank you for it, Father. In the name of Jesus Christ, amen.